0: This is bumping into where we have interesting conversations with people from all walks of life. Hi everybody, I'm Francis Populin. This is bumping into and on this episode of the podcast, we are talking to Roy Malloy. Roy is the author behind some very well-known Australian books that focus predominantly around early Australian crime. Some of Roy's work includes Squizzy, obviously about Squizzy Taylor, the biography. The Dawn of Crime, which focuses on some of the very first gangs to form back in 19th century, early 20th century. And Roy's latest book, Dolly Gray, which is focusing around Squizzy Taylor's wife. I've tried to sort of break this conversation up into the first part we're talking about Roy and how he ended up doing this roy is quite well known and unique in that he was the first person to really dig deep and go beyond the surface Uh, he chased up family members he went through thousands and thousands of newspaper articles He, he really went a lot deeper than anyone seemed to have done um well certainly that i can find before him regarding those uh early criminal figures in you know australia's early years Roy wasn't always an author, Roy had an interesting life that led him into that path So the first part of the episode we're talking to Roy about him Um, Obviously to understand the stories For me, I like to go before that and, And there's a story about Roy that we're going to talk about And then we jump into some of his books and various bits of work that he's doing And currently putting together as well It's a great episode, I'm sure you're going to enjoy it Stick around and I'll speak to you on the other side So from Circus into author
1: how did that occur what's the what's the story yeah yeah um my parents were disaster response missionaries for the salvation army Uh, my dad was a masters of social work which is a rare beast in the 70s social work was a kind of new discipline but he was pretty forward-thinking and very committed that all four of their parents were also salvation army officers and lifelong uh, both their dads were in world war ii with the salvos you know. um skip forward my i was raised in hong kong primarily um oh, okay. where my dad was working with um refugees and uh and then we were in india for you know, short parts and sri lanka for short parts and other, other locations uh we uh, it was it wasn't traumatic in as much as disjointed parents were very loving uh, particularly my mum but I struggled a lot with the the upheaval of moving schools and houses a lot I didn't learn to read or write in in that process so I, I left school should have been year 12 I, I um, really struggled when I came back to Australia um, as a teenager and I knew the writing was on the wall uh, so the, towards the latter part of year 11 and early part of year 12 I, I found a new love um in busking in street performance now to be clear that wasn't a popular thing <laughs> it was i'd seen it in other countries in UK and stuff like that where we've been traveling but in australia in the 1990s if you're under 30 you probably don't realize what a hostile nightmare scape desolate wasteland of a situation the arts industry was in australia in the 1990s wow. it, it was you would wear black t-shirt black jeans white t-shirt blue jeans that was about it anything outside of that as a man you were and here's a word we don't use very often you're a pofter <laughs> wow. and i I, was, I have six kids and i was talking to them recently i said do you, do you know the word pofter and they said they'd never two of them had never heard that word i'm thankful for that yeah i don't think my kids would have heard it yeah that's that's a good but, point yeah if you were called a pufter when i was tad. you were inches from getting a hiding
0: yeah and so we, yeah.
1: Came, we came back from overseas and we spoke we spoke frightfully well because we've been brought up speaking with uh, English accents in, in that kind of place. And so first day at school, teacher said, Roy, this is Terry Papadopoulos, he'll be your friend for the day. And I did what we did over, overseas. I put my hand out and I said, totally good to meet you, old chap. And he went, <laughs> Con George Tasso, come and listen to the poofta, do it again, kid." Oh, it was the longest day of my life. Oh, longest shit. singular <laughs> day of my life. And we had, a, we had a subject in that school. It was a school in the north suburbs of Melbourne. We had a subject called weapons shop. You'd call it woodwork. It uh-huh. was, I assure you, it was, man, we made nothing but weapons. We'd take the tops of our tomato tins that mum cooked with, and we'd make throwing stars.
0: Oh, and uh,
1: then we'd catch the tram down to the Essendon Junction where the Essendon grammar boys were, and they'd be standing there holding their fruit flan, <laughs> that they have made and we'll be throwing stars it was a, it was a pretty rough place you know but i made three juggling clubs and uh, on the on the wood lathe in woodwork and um i took them into the city instead of going to school and i put a little hat down and i juggled and i made 38 bucks that day now to a 15 year old that 16 year old that was a lot of money yeah but it was a white cold terror for me, the anxiety that I was going to get bashed—I was genuinely afraid that somebody I'd never met would walk up to me, see me doing that, and bash me. It was that kind of in- environment at that day. But I, I did—I I got away with it, and I took the money home. And I thought, you know what? This—it was just too intoxicating. So I went back and back and back. And then I, I, little little spates of not going home. I'd um, just sleep them. I'd meet other street performers and stay at their places. And at that time, Brunswick and Collingwood had just gone from being small, mart and part-owned factories that would make like rubber stamps or batik shoes or mechanics that was everywhere and now they've just gone into being um loft apartments and cafes so there's no end of bohemian places you could sleep the queer scene was very much around that exact group um and if you were although i don't identify as queer myself if you are an ally or embracing and and just not a prick um, you you know it was a great place to just love be free and, and meet others and so uh, I for lack of a better expression I ran away from home I I kind of bounced around um, I got a car and that gave me a place to stay from time to time My, my, my dad died when I was quite young and uh, mum found it quite tough so I was out by myself and just meeting those people and finding I didn't have uh, academia as an educator like, and he couldn't read or write at an adult level but I did have a way of making money, um, and I've never been short of uh, enthusiasm. So, you know, I, was, I, was, I met a guy called David Castle, and David is, in my opinion, one of the greatest street performers that has ever lived. He's in Canada now, uh, but he was in Melbourne at the time, uh, and he taught me how to stilt walk. But he taught me by saying, can you stilt walk? I've got to pay a paid gig walking up and down Chapel Street in Melbourne. I said, yeah, sure, I can still walk. How hard can it be? did you happen to have a spare pair of stilts mate and he did so i went to a park at night and uh practiced and learned and taught myself um so that gave me another string to my bow um and then in that mix i start you just gravitate towards people who are like-minded and for me they were very very rare um mum's Rani is was born on country Aboriginal. So we're, we're a Zha Zha Wurrung family, which is uh, Dale's Um And w- all of us identify and have a lot of connection to culture and country. Um, and in that mix, I, I met a lot of guys who were in agricultural showmanship. And in Australia, we have an overlooked a category that really doesn't get enough. It's a cultural icon to most of the country but we tend to represent all of our industries by what the city is interested in. So you move outside the city and you get agricultural show circuits. And every year more people go to agricultural shows than cinema. Now cinemas are around every day of the week, but an agricultural show comes once a year. We're talking the Deniliquin show, the Yarrawonga show, You're uh, the, the, the local footy field puts on everything from chickens to quilting, and then you get got your carnival rides, show bags. And 3,000 people go that day. It's, it's in a country town. That's one of the two big events in the year. It's the grand final and the show. And let's say, let's say uh, 2,000 people go to a small country show. Mavis, who runs the agricultural committee, she's taken $10 per person as they come in. She's got 20 grand to spend. She'll spend it on attractions to get more people. So the people they don't typically get easily are the young men because they're not interested in chickens and quilting. Yeah. And so she'll bring in a monster truck or something like that. So I saw there was a market at the time for escape acts in chains and straitjackets, masculine kinds of circusy kind of stuff. And so I kind of started pitching my my own stuff towards um, a bit of nail stunt, still walking with heavy weights in my hand. These kinds of uh, testosterone oh, geez, I hope he falls off his stilts, that kind of stuff. <laughs> And that propelled me into a new kind of industry. In that in that search, I, I was meeting older fellas who were on the showgrounds who would come up as, alongside me and say, look, you've got a really old school energy, an old Australian. And it wasn't deliberate, but they would talk about guys like Jimmy Sharman and Big Chief Little Wolf. And, and a lot of people will overlook this and not remember it. There was a movie called The Sapphires, about three um, First Nations singers who had a hit with – a kind of do-ron-ron kind of song. But they had a, a tent that would go from agricultural show to agricultural show, and next to them would be Slim Dusty in his concert tent, and next to him would be a wrestling tent and then a boxing tent. And these guys had household names. I mean, they were genuinely, genuinely famous, A-grade famous for that. But we don't remember that because television almost erased it. But in Fitzroy, there was a gym called the the Aboriginal Stars Gym, and it was a boxing gym, and there was an old man there called Alec Giacomozzi. And Alec was one of the tent proprietors, a Greek fellow who married an Aboriginal uh, Annie, And um, he was accepted as one and all by, as an Aboriginal man himself uh, in that respect. And he was training young lads at the Stars Gym. So I went and got familiar and, you know, and picked his brain and heard his stories. He's very kind to me. Um, but he, he made me aware of stories. And he introduced me to an old fellow called Kevin Lee. Now, Kevin was um, on Jimmy Sharman's... Troop, Jimmy Sharman's son is the fellow who directed the Rocky Horror Picture show. That's Jim oh, Sharman, right. who is still at the Opera House directing ballet now. Wow, uh, yeah. And I, I don't know that young Jimmy's uh, experience is all that positive. He wrote a book talking about that, and so he's never really ventured down the path of making a movie about his dad. But geez, there's a movie there. Um, oh, okay. so I got, I got to meet Kevin, and Kevin told me his life story. He'd had a stroke years earlier. And he, he'd been a boy's homeboy in the 1930s, one of four kids, only knew the sister when parents both died, in a boy's home. And he joined a chain gang, and he was pulling up the Bluestone blocks on the street in Swan Hill, I think, on a really stinking hot day. And he fell out with the foreman, belted him, and then ran and was hiding during the day, waiting for night four to come to hitchhike out of town. And the truck that he found was Jimmy Sharman's boxing troupe on the way to the next show. And I think he said to, he said to Jimmy, uh, "I my mum's sick. I've got to get to the next town. And Jimmy said, where are you going? He said, I'm going that way. Jimmy said, well, we're not. We're going the other way. But there's sick mums in that town too if you want to come. <laughs> <laughs> so Kevin got on board. and he, he became a very, very good boxer. And he fell in love with a young lady he kept seeing at the, the different shows whose dad also owned a tent. Now, old dad owned a tent show, which was a strip tease tent. And the way Kevin tells the story, he said there was a 50-year-old woman who'd stand there in a G-string with holsters and guns on her hips and cowboy boots. He said it was a pretty sad-looking affair. It was, <laughs> but look, in a country town, you get these dirty old dads that would pay you know, a couple of pennies to see it. Yeah. But the 15-year-old daughter on the show, sitting on the door, dad was trying to make her also strip on his tent show. He's a bit of a scumbag. Mm. but um, Kevin was mortified and he, they decided to run away. Uh, he Neither one of them wanted that fate for her. So they ran away and they're in Melbourne for an event that became Moomba. It used to be called the Hentley on Yarra. The Hentley rowing races in, uh, in England are a bit, were a big affa- affair then. And uh, we had a, an approximation in Melbourne called the Hentley on Yarra. And so they were there beside the Yarra. They, they saw each other, decided to run away. They went to a hotel for the night and they had this incredible passion at night as you know late teenagers but in the cold light of day the next morning they realized that they had nowhere to go they had no money and it was pretty stark so Kevin went to the bartender and said um if we go our separate ways can I write to you when I've got stability a home a town I found work in I'll send money here and when she's here next she'll come in here she'll get the envelope from you and she'll come and be with me the bartender left and so years go by and the letters are getting chucked out not known at this address and it was only by pure chance in the 1970s that they were both he went there for a drink and they he'd been there many times since just reminiscing but she was coming out when he was going in and they 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 hooked up together they both swore they'd never been with another person wow and isn't unusual in the in the grand scheme of traveling people they, it's very difficult to make partnerships when you are transit.
0: Always on the go. So
1: I can't believe it. Anyway, they, they hooked up together. And by the time I knew Kevin, he was um, in a, uh, a hospital for people who had had uh, strokes and he was in semi care. But twice a week, she'd come into this shared room that he was in, she'd draw the curtain around him, <laughs> around his bed off they'd go (laughs) um it was was beautiful you know so i I kind of i was 19 20 and i i knew that i wanted to be i love literature loved stories and that aboriginal part, part of yarning is very important to me and so i started writing a story down with his consent and i put it together in a book called tent boxer and it took me uh about four or five years to really get it to a point where i could publish it i sent it around to a bunch of publishers and um it got picked up eventually by a very small indie publisher and they sold it. It was a fellow and his wife and they took it from bookshop to bookshop physically themselves. So it was limited as to what they could do with it oh. uh, before the internet. And I think I made about a $1.20 per jacket. And so I made maybe a few hundred bucks all up, you know, um, and I, I just left it at that. But then as time went by, I became more and more interested in the mechanization and management of performance, because I was, I was very committed to being. I always wanted to scale things up. This is the kind of my intro into true crime research. Being able to research, um, and it's, it amazes me that we have access to these things. But being able to research the books of a nineteen thirties building society, which I was able to do, was able to show that there was money changing hands that shouldn't have been. So I stopped writing books on my computer, and uh, I've written. Uh, nine of the 11 books on my phone on your isn't so, typing yeah on your phone. absolutely so it gives you scope to use google docs and the the biggest database resource is trove and trove is um national library of australia trove is a database of every newspaper we've published more or less since the 1850s so if you want to research a topic let's say it's a, a particular gangster and that'll bring me to the next point in a minute you, you punch their name in the newspaper if they've done almost anything of worth particularly in the old days when they would report even a traffic violation would make a national newspaper.
0: Right. You're
1: going to get every, I'm not kidding, like a traffic violation. There's a there's a, a newspaper article that's syndicated to three other states where Squizzy Taylor, who was absolutely unknown, was done in his teens for riding a horse on the wrong side of the road. And that made the news. That was newsworthy. That news. And that also gives us, though, when you're researching – And you see a newspaper article that talks about something and it's very brief and in only one newspaper. When they start omitting things about gangsters, that also speaks about the threat that gangsters were to journalists.
0: Oh, right.
1: So in researching The Dark Side of the Moon and on my phone in the latter part of that experience, I I always had a, a desire to read about, learn about Squizzy Taylor now, a lot of I still meet people who don't know the name, and I, I've done a lot of work on social media um, to try and educate Australia about our own stories. And for me, and, and yarning and and storytelling, I think it, I look at this as almost a calling to say to Australia: we have good or bad doesn't matter if you like the story. We have more potent stories than the Americans have taught us to believe. We have richer culture of transgression of the law. Then, it, then the Cray Twins, the Bonnie and Clyde. And I say those names. I say the Cray Twins, Bonnie and Clyde, Al Capone, Machine Gun Kelly, the Valentine's Day Massacre. And people have a vague idea what they were. They know they're American. They know they're, they're the principal players. But if I say the 1919 Fitzroy Vendetta, most people go, no, nah, what? I'll get, I'll get to that shortly. But I started researching Squizzy Taylor. I first came across that name when I was uh, maybe nine or 10 and I was in China with my parents and we were watching one of the rare moments where we had access to a television and there was a piece on Al Capone and my dad said, I remember it vaguely, but I remember being impacted by the message more than what I remember. My dad said, we had a guy in Australia, very similar to that. His name was Squizzy Taylor. And it kind of resonated with me because it's a, I I wouldn't say it's a funny name, like a clown like Bozo, But it's not a usual name, it it kind of does. It's like Ronald McDonald or Evil Knievel, it kind of has a ring to it, It
0: does. Yeah,
1: yeah. And but it's also though, even though I didn't know a thing about him, it it has a a sort of sinister ring about it a darkness. Anyway, I I went and started trying to find anything I could when I was in my late 20s, mid 20s, and I, I found a bookshop in Dalesford where there was an old fella down by the lake called kerry and he he knew every book that had been published in australia he was just one of those bookworms and i said to him has there been a book on squeezy taylor and he said yeah there was i'll see if i can get it in so he got the book in for me about a year later a second-hand copy and it was called um larrikin crook the rise and fall of squeezy taylor the author was a guy called hugh Roberts hugh robertson i think hugh roberts and um he was a prolific Australian biographer and a school teacher, but he was working from microfiche in the nineteen seventies. Now, let, remember that the nineteen seventies is only fifty years after Squizzy Taylor, and there were people alive who knew Squizzy. So he was Hugh himself was in his late thirties at the time, and he was around and rubbing shoulders with people who were still scarred from the Squizzy Taylor Melbourne experience. Oh, wow, okay. So I'm born in nineteen seventy five. It's like me talking to people who remember Band Aid bob geldoff and the you know or the death the the life of princess diana yeah you know th- those people are around so he wrote a book but being restricted to what knowledge he had access to by microfiche if you're under 30 google microfiche <laughs> it was a tiny micro slide of a newspaper page and you put it in a an expanding teleprompter and it would zoom past and he was he was so limited that the, only the very vague skeleton of the, the Squeezie Taylor story is captured in these 300 pages. So far out is his data that he's got a photo of a crook in there called Leslie Taylor. And Squizzy's real name is Leslie Taylor. But in the book, he he puts a photo of a boy called Leslie Taylor in there and says, this is Leslie Taylor when he's younger. And he's correct. It is Leslie Taylor when he's younger, but a different Leslie Taylor. Uh-huh. He, so very limited as to what he could do, right? but it's a very good attempt for what he was stuck with. So I I, I began reading the newspaper articles on Trove and I punched into the search engine. I encourage people to do this. I punched in Leslie Taylor, about 20,000 newspaper articles came up. A lot of them were repeats. So you're down to about 10, maybe 8,000 newspaper articles start to finish of his career from 1915 to 1927 8,000 newspaper articles. But then when you go Squizzy Taylor, when his nickname really takes off in about 1907, you, you're up to a huge amount and surprised. maybe 80,000. Yeah. <laughs> when you skin them down, get rid of the doubles, but you still got to look at the doubles. So it's a double. So you're not reading them, but you've got a few minutes in each article. You're down to about 30,000. That's what I reckon. So researching the Squizzy Taylor biography took me about seven years. And it was all note-taking on my phone. It was kind of you read a bit and I'll be out for dinner with friends and we're waiting for someone. We're sitting there, uh, whip out my phone. I also don't have television. I, I gave up television 15 years ago. So in the evening, I, I pull out my phone. I watch a bit of TikTok here and there and, yeah, you know, social media stuff. But I write and I, I read stuff on my phone. I've got books and I that that is how I spend my time. So, you know, I was, I was kind of cataloguing chronologically with the newspapers And trying to go through the newspapers chronologically to construct the guts of this story. None of my own words, no translation, just cut and paste, cut and paste, cut and paste. Dates, times, references. But as I was doing that, I kept realising that Squizzy would spend a lot of time with this character for five years. And they become a very big part of his life. So you've got to go and then research them. In that research process, you do things like you get onto Ancestry.com and I I'm, I feel I've got some developed skills like going to birth, deaths, and marriages, finding that I'm, you know, who I'm looking for. Then you reach out to them and you, you look for a parallel name on Facebook, for example, and you say, Look, hey, man, this, this may sound really weird. Was your great grandfather Henry Stokes? And they go, um, Yes, who are you? Well, so, you know, you go into these conversations and you find that a lot of them will have access to knowledge that you never have a chance of getting. In one case, it's a I was able to find Squizzy's ninety-seven-year-old daughter alive and well in Geelong.
0: 97-year-old. Right.
1: Wow. Right. His Squizzy's family were very, very guarded and very cautious because since his death, well more than more than that, since the 1980s, every 10 years or so, another author would come up and say, Hey, can we talk about now, first of all, the legacy of a gangster like that, even now, is such that Squizzy's bride, who was widowed when he died, I read a newspaper that she got several jobs back to back. And every time the uh, another colleague would say, Oh, you're Ida Pender, the boss would sack her on the spot. Right. So Just the family it was, it was,
0: didn't want to be involved. Yeah,
1: it was traumatizing for these poor, poor. That's all the families of all the gangsters. That's what they left their families as legacy. These people did nothing. And they were traumatised. So the next generation hid. They changed names. They had not, even at the time, Squizzy's siblings had nothing to do with him apart from his two brothers. So that's one layer. The other layer is the ones who would participate would go through the hope of being exonerated in a, a book of some kind. They'd produce all the family documents. And then I guess my predecessors would look at the huge volume of research required and go, nah, too hard. And then the family would be left with no answers. So by the time I found the families, they were like, man, you're just another one. Yeah. But that did, t- it was only after it published, I was able to re- get actual contact and access to three of the main families. So I'm working on a second edition now with that knowledge. But in the making of Squizzy Taylor, I was constantly finding other characters, secondary characters. And a good example is Bridget Mahoney. A lot of people don't realise that we had Sly Grog, well, alcohol laws, World War I the king passed a law to say that every licensed venue had to stop trading at 6 p.m. It was problematic for the factory workers making shonky second-rate munitions because they were hungover. So we stopped selling alcohol at 6 p.m. and it became known as the six o'clock swill. So they would, knees to chest, run from the factory to the pub, chuck back three pints and try and go home and get a night's sleep. So it gave rise to any prohibition, and that is an actual prohibition. The Australians think we didn't have prohibition. We absolutely did and that was a long-lasting rule. It wasn't like the Volstead Act in America, the Prohibition. It was ours went for years and years and years. Uh, it gave rise to slide grog, and slide grog was the kind of thing. So my my dad remembers slide grog rules, and you, you'd always know a bloke whose dad had a an old tub in the garage who could sell you some beer, or you'd you'd buy your long necks and you'd hide them in the bushes. But it gave rise to slide grog shops, and that was the big money, because. People who, who wanted to buy slide Grog didn't usually just want one thing. They wanted every vice, cocaine, women, guns. Oh, okay. Now, also remember in this time period, entertainment until the not late oh, mid-1930s, we didn't really have radio. So we're talking now 1916, 17, 18, 19, this real rash period. The only entertainment you've got is reading. Talking after six PM, we're talking to each other. We're reading, playing t- um, dominoes, playing card. That that's it. Movies aren't a thing. Radio isn't a thing, right? You'd pay money to go into a room to listen to a gramophone. Yeah. So, so when you say two up was popular, my kids will say, what How would how on earth would people care what sides of coins land on?" The mm. truth is, you have no idea how bored these people were. That that was really high entertainment. So two up is a very, very big deal and people are spending a lot of money. It's highly illegal, but there's so much so that Henry Stokes was his best mate, took a house in uh, Goodwood street, Richmond. And he built a, what looked like a factory, double store, double story brick building in the backyard. And he dug tunnels under the fence line into the neighbor's backyards. So then if the police raided, all of his players could go through the tunnels and be in the backyards of other people minding their own business it was very big business but the slide grog was predominantly made by Irish women women also stood far less chance of being properly arrested and put in jail it was for a woman to end up in jail she's a really she's a serious re-offender okay. judges didn't like the idea of a mother going to jail a woman going to jail and they let them off uh, more than half the time where a man would go so they were risk-free in that respect but again where you find one vice you don't tend to find it alone you find it with prostitution in this case so squizzy has a slide robber called minnie clark she's making his slide rog. she's got four brothels his enemy is a guy called um uh ted whiting now ted whiting is a boxer he's australian welterweight champion and so famous that people lie around the block just to watch him train uh he's incredibly famous and at the end of his stellar career he goes back to Fitzroy and says, I'm going to be a standover man. That That's it. He literally puts the knuckles on every single shopkeeper in Fitzroy and says, pay me or something will happen to your front windows. So he then starts opening up uh, Sly Grog Shops, and they're run by his brother, Bunny Whiting, B-U-N-N-Y. And Bunny is a, a quietly spoken short man who is the enforcer. They've got a gunman who's six foot one called Long Harry Slater. And Harry will pay you a visit if if Bunny doesn't succeed. In this mix, Ted Whiting, the boxer, was in a a boxing match early in his career where he did 20 rounds against a guy with a broken voice box. He copped a a punch in the throat. And from what I understand, this is what his voice would have sounded like the rest of his life. So you've got this goon-looking, ominous, heavy-set boxer with a lowbrow who speaks like this you got Bunny Whiting, Long Harry Slater, and the woman making their slide grog is a 70-year-old woman called Bridget Mahoney. She looks like everybody's grandma. Bridget is so sophisticated in her slide grog manufacture that she's taken her double-story terrace house in North Melbourne, you know, the Carlton style typical Victorian. Yeah. She's got one of those. On the veranda, she's pulled up the floorboards, put rails that she can lie long-neck beer bottles on, and she put a mechanism above the front door with a string so that when somebody knocked on the door, said the password, she pulled the string and down would fall a beer bottle that she'd catch. And hand, wow. she made her house to a vending machine. And is this house right. still there? The one next door is. The one wow. that her sons were living in is. It's now a laneway there. Now, this is a common theme, funny you ask it. So many of those places were bulldozed. Wow. I'll talk about the the Fitzroy Narrows in a second. But all of these secondary characters, as I was researching the Squizzy Taylor story, I can mention them where they fit Squizzy Taylor. But the breadth of their stories was incredible. And I kept finding myself going, I don't want to delete this stuff. Yeah. So I started producing a series of books that have short biographies of that secondary data called The Dawn of Crime. Yeah. So my next book, even before Squizzy came out, was a book called The Dawn of Crime and it, it captures the stories of Bridget Mahoney and the other people who appear in these stories, and I want to preserve their whole story, but I needed a vehicle to do that.
0: Yeah,
1: I was surprised, though, because the Dawn of Crime really picked up a momentum and a gathering of followers, true crime followers. Yeah, uh, And probably because it's lots of short stories, they're easier to digest, you know. But you keep reading it going, this is fiction. No, nah, no, nah, this has got to be fiction. It's But, you know, there you go. But then it led me to the Fitzroy vendetta and the squeezy taylor biography and, and look to have a best-selling book is is a tremendous achievement and I, i'm very proud of the work that i did but it, it was it was only possible because it's available to be done now i was probably just the first one to think of it not that it's something others couldn't do just that i was the, one of the first to jump on this ability with newspapers being available yeah. the internet and a phone i don't have to sit at the desk with a typewriter yeah, it became available, I was just the first right, but the our ability to overlook things as a culture and gaze at the Americans saddens me tremendously, right mm. so the Fitzroy Vendetta is what pro- perhaps the, the saddest, most overlooked story that we've got it surpasses the last stand at Glenn Rowan easily it surpasses the Valentine's Day Massacre in America, the Uh, It was next level. And what it comes down to is (laughs) Squizzy was, he cuts apart from all other pickpockets and goons his generation. There are so many of them. There are so, so many pickpocketers. And if the cop didn't catch you physically doing it, they could come to your house the next day and say to you, um, they'll say, this guy saw you when you mugged him. We know you did it. They'd take you to court. You stand in the docks and the, the prosecution would say, Squeezy, we know you did this. And you'd say, prove it. They had no CCTV, no fingerprints, no DNA. And so without, without the policeman physically seeing you do it, it was almost impossible to nab Crooks. So Crooks had free reign. Also remember, the policemen at that time walked a beat. So they'd walk this seven sets of blocks in the city looking for a crime. The crooks would literally wait till the copper had gone and then do their crimes. So it was a a, a crook's paradise. But Squizzy does cut apart because he starts trying to organise crimes. Now, I've argued that that's because he married an older woman called Dolly Gray. Dolly was six years older than him. he was 18 when we first see them together. They're both from Bendigo. So Squizzy Taylor is orphaned young and he's sent to a boy's home in Bendigo where he spends his teen years. And we first see him in a room where the police kick the door down and it's a brothel and a house that Dolly owns. She owns a house. So she's 26. Now I'm not saying she rents a house. She owns a house
0: oh, at that
1: age. Yeah. So and it's not a small house. It's, it's a nice house in a leafy street. That house is also bulldozed. Oh. It's part of the, part of the um, Bendigo football oval. Now it's a theme and I'll explain why in a minute, but, uh, the police come to the house because it's the, the Bendigo Cup. Every crook in town is there to pickpockets. But there's a building in the in the heart of Bendigo that was once the Bendigo police lockup. So Squizzy knows the guts of that building pretty well, right? He's been in it. It's now a printing press, and they're doing very well. During the night, there's an explosion. Some crooks have jimmied the back door and put wet blankets and gelignite against the front of the safe, and they blew the door off it and took 12 pounds the police are pretty sure they know who it is <laughs> so they go to dolly gray's brothel she answers the door there's a couple of other named prostitutes there who are wearing satin and silk during the day one of them has a gun in a garter on her hip right we're, we're talking the full 1920s well it's 19, 1907 actually but in that in the living room is Squizzy taylor and an all-star cast of the biggest goons known to man there's a guy called uh, ramage ramage is known Famously, incredibly famously, for getting drunk with his mate, and they find police on the beat to try and kill them. Like this is the caliber he's he's recruiting bigger, uglier guys to do the heavy heavy lifting. So that's where we first see them together. It names her as Dolly Gray, but that's not her real name, and she's going under an alias even then. Now the, the name Dolly Gray comes from the song. We know it as the Collingwood theme song. Good old Collingwood forever. Originally at that time it was a song about goodbye, goodbye, Dolly Gray. But it's about a good time girl. Oh, right, So Charlotte nice. Haynes takes the nickname Dolly Gray. She's a good time girl. Right. Right. So Squizzy and, and they they kind of they're theatrical. I've never gone out in the limb and said I believe Squizzy was queer. But we see him again and again in his childhood in pantomimes, plays, poetry recitals. He is theatrical. I've never been able to prove and substantiate the rumors that he dressed as a little boy, a little girl, an old woman. There's a lot of rumors and rumors tend to have a kernel of truth, but he absolutely loves the pantomime of dress up and names like nicknames. He also has a strange habit of being with women who are very different in age to him. Dolly's much older than him, which is very unusual. His third wife, is 16 when he's in his late 30s. And the newspapers are aware of how gross that is. They even say if we catch them, she has to be tried at the children's court. Oh wow. So he 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 doesn't fit any normal molds anyway. Dolly Gray and Squizzy go about their business and they get bigger and bigger, but he keeps going to jail because he's he's erratic and he's for very petty things. But towards the end of that period, up to 1916, 17, 18 she starts pushing him down a different line. I'm I'm sure it's her that does. I've been able to find Dolly's um, great-granddaughter and some of the other family, and they provided me with the two photographs that are on the cover and inside the book I published this year, um, Dolly, the Madam of Melbourne. They believe that I'm right when I say that she built up this young man into an organised criminal. Now, she's an organised criminal in her own right, but she has to be far more organised than him. He can fight. He can punch. He can, he can go out and pick pockets and run. As a woman, she didn't have access to any of that. To break the law as a woman, you've got to be organised at that time.
0: Right.
1: You've got to set up systems, have a lease. It's usually sex-related, so it's, it's a brothel. So she already thinks systematically. And I believe by about 1916, she's taking this guy. They've been together a decade. She already had two small daughters. When when she met Squizzy, she had a six- and a seven-year-old daughter. Squizzy really stepped in as the stepfather to these girls. Dad died in war from gas attack. He died in Flanders. But Squizzy steps up as their stepdad, and they changed their last name from Haynes, which is their last name. No, sorry, their last name was Donahue. The two girls changed their names to being Donahue Taylor. So they're really living a domestic, proper family life. Dolly takes the lease of uh, a brothel on Little Lonsdale Street. It's one of the few remaining buildings that still remain, still there. And Squizzy keeps going to jail. And I think she takes it just for stability and the responsibility of having daughters. But she sets it up as a slide grog shop and a brothel. And she's very, very, very successful. Now, you think to yourself, well, everybody knew it was a brothel. Why wouldn't they shut it down? In one of her court hearings, she's being done for supplying a customer with sly grog she's made, and the prosecution says, "Are we overlooking the fact that it was in a brothel?" And the judge says, "Well, we, men will be men. We've got to overlook some things." The world was horrified by sly grog, and happy to let slide the arguably far more victim creating sex trade at the time anyway so that they they do let brothels just go under the radar so she's trading there and every time he comes out of jail he's got a place to stay she's got money and it creates an opportunity for him to get systematic the thing i think she pushes him towards is jewelry jobs so 1916 17 we see him getting arrested a few times for breaking and entering into jewelry shops and we see him caught with really large quantities of silver and diamonds the one cabinet photo we find of Dolly Gray uh, that the family su- supplied clearly on her hand, you can see huge diamond rings. It was transferable wealth. You keep it with you because at any moment, if you needed to do a runner, you've got what you need. Right. Oh, so Squizzy is getting bigger and bigger. And you've got to remember for the two or three jewelry shops we see him caught for, there must be dozens he's not caught for. Yeah. he's also going to court a lot and he makes comment later in his life he says every time you bring me to court i have to leave this courtroom that night go out and knock over 10 20 houses just to make the money to pay the lawyers for the next day court <laughs> <laughs> and he's not kidding he's so prolific squizzy also cuts apart in his motivation he's manic where you and i get up each day and go to do a job he does that with crime so a lot of crooks will get drunk commit crimes buy booze get drunk there's three-day gaps. He's systematic. Every day, get up, go, go to work, commit crimes. He, his, his numbers are sh- like business. Really does. Like pinky in the brain, right? Yeah. He's every day, we're going to take over the world. So he kind of gets to a point where he's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. He has faced murder charges previously, which I'm pretty sure he did. Okay. But he's, he's a very dangerous guy. He's capable. But then he comes up with this idea. He's in Collins Street, and he sees Kirkpatrick's jewellery shop. The thing that cuts that jewellery shop apart from others is the front doors. The doors are two glass doors. they both open in one direction. On one side of the door, they've got brass plates about, look like an A4 piece of paper cut long ways. So it's a, a brass plate that you push to get in the shop. On the inside of the shop is a handle. Sorry, other way around. On the outside of the shop is the handle. So you pull the door open to get in the shop. When you're in the shop, you push the door to get out of the shop. Yep. Squeezy realized that if you rob the shop, walk out and chain the door shut on the outside. Uh, trapped. Right. No alarms, no phones. But he also knew that he'd been to jail enough that if he got caught again, he was going for three to five years. Right. So he had a mate who was also a businessman called Henry Stokes. Now, Henry is one of Australia's most prolific and organised criminals at that time. And he owns two up venues, but the money, when we see him caught in newspapers, the volumes of money they're talking about is huge. It's hundreds and hundreds of pounds every time he's caught. So he's also churning big dollars. Squizzy is on his security detail. So when I read between the lines and you try, you have to kind of interpret what happens. I believe Squizzy and Henry came up with a plan and they went and they saw the Fitzroy push. So they go up to the boxer, Ted Whiting, and they make a prickly deal because they're enemies. And they say, we need two clean crooks. Now, clean crook is somebody who's complicit with you but has no criminal record. So if they get caught, they won't do very long. Okay. But the reason Squizzy can't ask two of his own clean crooks is because they'll walk out with the jewellery and go, you know what? We've done this crime. We're not giving this loot to Squizzy. Let's go. If they know each other, you need two enemies, right? So both gangs provide one bloke each. They walk in, successfully walk out with the jewellery, go their own ways, and then a meeting takes place. Squizzy, this is what I – I've got a screenplay, which is in discussions with the production company at the moment, uh, which is an – it's a timeline-correct and character-correct encounter of the 1919 Fitzroy Vendetta. I foresee a time when Squizzy took that loot with his guys. My bird is, my bird is chirping. She's trying to join the story. Um, <laughs> Squizzy and his guys took that loot to an address at number nine, Webb Street in Fitzroy. Web Street has been bulldozed. <laughs> Webb Street was the home address of Ted Whiting, and it was in the the absolute heart of what was called the Fitzroy Narrows. Melbourne's renowned for laneways. These were laneways that were only metres wide. You'd only just get a horse and cart down all of them. And Ted had two houses next door to each other, no no mutual fence, one backyard, fire pit, and gunmen and thieves from around the country would sit around every night having a yarn. It, it was where all of his lieutenants would come after a day of trading in his many sly grog, grog shops. And I imagine Squizzy and Henry Stokes pulled up out the front with a guy called Albert McDonald, who was their gunman, and they went in and sat down with the diamonds. They broke them into what they said was two halves, and they gave half to the boxer, and they went home with the other half. And things seemed like they were going really well until Squizzy's mate Henry Stokes was arrested and the police found the half of the diamonds. They reported it to the newspapers and the newspaper said, we found this many diamonds. And when it was read, it was quite clear that Squizzy and his mate had taken far more than half. Right. So there was a court hearing because they'd found the Kirkpatrick's diamonds and fingers were pointed and out of the wash on the last day of the, the hearing, Squizzy's mate was let off. Squizzy was never put on the stand, but Squizzy's mate Henry was let off and he was acquitted because they couldn't get enough evidence. But when they walked out of the court, the other guys from Fitzroy were standing out there and they flogged them within an inch of their life and they physically ch- chased them from Russell Street all the way down to near Spencer Street train station. Right. It was this enormous melee all the way through Melbourne
0: In and the it was the of beginning.
1: Day. Yeah. And, and the police tried to get involved but the police were genuinely afraid of these guys. So you get this this bubbling tension just before christmas 1919 when 1919 clicks over it was still going there was daily bashings and drive-bys and but it was simmering down right these guys they've got other, other fish to fry they've got other businesses to run and they, they 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 hate each other and it would be a long a long feud but they ultimately are letting it go you know until squizzy has a bright idea He and Dolly decide that she will go. Now, all the sex workers and all the Sly Grog makers knew each other. Very small pool, and the women tended to know each other best. So Dolly is volunteered either by herself or or they volunteer her with two of her friends to go up to Fitzroy into the main Sly Grog shop of Ted Whiting to do a temperature check. When she gets there. It's not really apparent what's said but she's wearing a fistful of diamonds diamonds that he thinks he owns and they sit her down, they give her drinks, they drug her drinks, laser her drinks and she passes out. During her inebriation it, it's it intimates in the records that it's not just the slide grog manufacturers and the, the, the like Ted Whiting himself it's also customers in this venue so she's stripped naked, and left in this incre- this unimaginable state, and the rings on her hands are gone. She comes to the next morning, or I'd say early, early in the morning, and she knows what's happened, probably vaguely understands what's happened. And she says, where are the rings? What's happened to me? And they laugh at her and say, we'll give you the rings back with a consideration, as in let's have another round. So she escapes staggers her way from Fitzroy back down to near Russell Street headquarters where her brothel is, and then presents to Squizzy in that state. Now, Squizzy was violent, but he's a little bloke, so he tended to know that he would get flogged more easily than he could win. So he carried guns for that reason, but he was always on the edge. He has two brothers, one called Stan, one called Claude. Claude is next-level psychopath. Like, Like, Claude is older by a year and a half, but he is the kind of psychopath that was only opportunity away from a mass killing. He was properly liked hurting people. He was on the scene as well. And when Squizzy saw Dolly, I have to imagine it changed him as you, as you can imagine it would, Mm. it would be horrific. But Squizzy paid a visit to Ted Whiting that day, knocked on the door and there was a prickly change of words, knowing that he'd be, Shot dead on the spot if he produced a gun. He walked off. His partner, Henry Stokes, went that night, also had an exchange of words. Nothing was accomplished. So later that night, Squeezie and his brother and Henry and their mate, Al McDonald, they got in a car and walked up to the door, knock, 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 and shot Ted Whiting in the head. Didn't kill him, interestingly. Now, the guns they were using, you see this over and over again. They're low-caliber guns. They're a gun called a Webley. Uh, they're a post-World War I sidearm. And they, they just don't kill. <laughs> they, again and again, you get these guys shot at close range and they just don't die. But Ted goes to hospital with bullet wounds that are consistent with him seeing someone with a gun, instantly turning sideways like a reflex into boxing stance, and the bullets hit him in the side. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so Ted's in hospital. And he thinks, you know what, we're even now. Squizzy was at home, meanwhile, going, we are not even. <sighs> and the next night drive by the next night the next night and the next night and the, and he just didn't stop so all through uh all through 1919 squizzy goes from being teetering on crazy to a white hot unstoppable rage the journalists talk a lot i mean this is front page all the time but not a journalist ever named squizzy by name they talk about him. And They talk about him in various forms, like the shadow that he is, or the the person behind it all. They never name him. They're, they're terrified of this guy, and he's walking freely around town, strutting even. But he just destroys everybody. He's the last man standing in the vendetta. The very, very tail end of it. There's a court hearing that doesn't achieve much, but it's become clear that Ted is a fraction of what he once was, and he becomes a fruit uh, a fruit um, shop owner in Sydney Road after that. That's the moment where Squizzy Taylor becomes Squizzy Taylor in earnest. It's a huge story and it goes on much past that um, up to his ultimate death. And I think that the the aspect of the Squizzy Taylor story that I was able to unpack a little bit is that there's a misconception when he he dies in a shootout that it was two blokes in a room. Now, I I don't know if you know this story, but I ask this to everybody before I go on with the next bit. If you've ever heard of Squizzy Taylor, do you know how he died? Not not exactly, no. There's always been an idea that he died in a shootout with a guy called Snowy Cutmore. And that's the urban legend that Squizzy goes into the bedroom of Snowy Cutmore, who's in bed with influenza. They both pull out guns. One's under his pillow. Squizzy's got one in his, in his hip pocket. And they shoot and both are shot. Snowy dies instantly. Snow- Squizzy just makes it to the hospital and dies. That's, that's the common story. That's the story... In the 1980s movie, Squizzy, that's the story in the Underbelly series.
0: Okay.
1: What actually happened? It's very earnestly in the newspapers. There was a guy called Norman Brunn, and Norman Brunn was the Razzy Gang founder with Tilly Devine and Kate Lee. Norman was a Geelong bloke, and he'd been very comfortable with weapons after World War One. He was syphilitic. He was barking mad and highly violent. And he'd gone to Sydney because Squizzy said, mate, you're the same level of, cra- of crazy that I am, and there's only room for one.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: So more or less. And they get along. It was mutual. They they kind of had a, a good deal going on. So Norman goes to Sydney with his wife and kids, does his Razor Gang establishment up there. Squizzy get, is down in Melbourne. Norman Brun was reported dead being shot in Sydney six months before Squizzy died. And Squizzy very publicly starts telling journalists, anybody that would listen, and remember, Squizzy's not like Carl Williams, uh, you know, a gangster that's occasionally reported. He's an A-grade celebrity. People, he, they made movies about him that were never aired, but almost every day for his entire career after the vendetta, he's in the newspapers oh. for something or other. So Squizzy starts saying, whoever killed Norman Brunt, I'm going to find them, and I'm going to avenge his death. Snowy Cutmore came back to Melbourne and Snowy had been friends with Squizzy very early on. Squizzy's brothers and Snowy had been hanging around since 1910. Squizzy was probably with Snowy when he killed a couple of people. But Snowy gets back to Melbourne and the assumption is that Snowy was part of that group that was around or was present or actually killed Norman Brunn. So the next day we see Snowy Cutmore at the Caulfield Racecourse And Squizzy, Taylor, and he have an altercation. They're both ejected. The next day, Squizzy showed up at Snowy's house with a guy called Roy Traverse. We later see that Roy Traverse is really in the thick of the Razor Gangs in Sydney. When they go into Snowy's room and you look at the forensics, the bullet wounds on Squizzy are in his back and side on the side that would have been facing the foot of the bed. He's standing beside Snowy's head, Snowy's shot, Squizzy's shot by the same gun.
0: So So the pair of them,
1: yeah, absolutely. We know that and the police know that. And the police start finding the weapons that have been thrown over the back fence, Squizzy exited, bleeding to death out the front door. And I don't know if it's just easier for people to digest at that time, that it's just over and done with, and we're thrilled.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, by the end of World War II when we saw the Nuremberg Trials, there's a there's an outside chance that Hitler escaped, and we know that. Mm. But the world was so exhausted from war that they just didn't have a, an appetite to pursue it. You just put
0: a back page and on at
1: the end, and that's it. That's it. Book ended nicely, happy. So we never really got conclusion on that. But my personal belief is that Snowy produced a gun from under his pillow. Squizzy—he was lying in bed. He was a psychopath. He didn't want somebody standing above him yelling at him. Old mate pulled a gun out, shot Squizzy, and possibly for whether he intended to shoot Squizzy, um, Squizzy originally, or he did it just uh, spur of the moment. But he's also shot Squizzy at the same time. Um, and that was the end of Squizzy Taylor. So, having said that, like I said, we—I've—I've I've now come in contact with. The all three of his wives I've come in contact I've kept an extensive list of anybody that I can prove was involved with him from police to little boys who are now all, who now have great grandchildren who are his runners. Um, I've met two people who say I can trace my DNA through ancestry to Squizzy because my great great grandmother was his mistress. Um, and we're in that kind of era now for a biographer and a crime biographer where we can unpack things. Mm unpack things through the lack of evidence. Where you see a gap, that's the bit that we write about. So we're not writing about politicians where every word is recorded or kings and queens. We're actually writing negative space history.
0: Yep. Yep. I'm peeling back the layers. That's
1: more or less. So, look, I, I feel that my excitement and hope is that, you know, I've this is my 11th book, the Dolly Gray biography that came out this year. Um, It, it sold – very quickly off the marks, far faster than the Squeezie Taylor biography did. Oh, wow. Um, and the Squeezy Taylor biography sold inc- uh, beyond what I thought it would. But the, the Dolly Gray biography had a second audience I've never really had access to as a female audience. Right. Um, because it, it, it doesn't talk about after – after her attack, Dolly Gray vanished. And I'm, I'm interested in what happens to these people after their experience
0: the ongoings what happens their lives,
1: yeah and i like to trace them to their very end and i've done that with most of the key players now squizzy's older brother claude dies syphilitic in a hospital i don't know what happened to his best mate albert mcdonald who's a huge figure i haven't really touched on in this discussion but i can't find him i think he ends up in the south china sea on ships but dolly ends up in adelaide and her ending is also very remarkable. It's in the book, and I won't ruin it for people. But she is the last person standing from all the key figures of the Vendetta. She's the last one alive, and I think that's, that's kind of—I don't know—poetic.
0: Yeah,
1: she's probably the oldest of them. She would have. She was born the first, but she's the last person to live. Um, is Dolly Gray? So moving forwards, I'm working on the Norman Brunn biography with his surviving family. It was a funny situation, actually. I I um, sent out a, a Facebook post to the groups that I'm in, the, the history nerd groups. I said, does anybody happen to know if the surviving family of Norman Brunn? Man, it was only 15 minutes tops. I started getting emails wow. uh, saying, hey, hey, what do you want? Is this to do with Chopper Reed? I said, what are you talking about? Wait, what? Stop, who? His family had reached out to me because they'd been flagged instantly. And again, it talks of the trauma that ha- these poor people have had to put up with. Nor- Norman Brunn reigned terror on his family. No question. We know that. But the generational trauma, and as an Aboriginal man, I also said that the generational trauma that my community suffers from colonialisation, it's one of those things I think about. But we overlooked that it happened to the families of criminals as well. These are innocent people. They've never done a thing wrong. But then they suffer for generation and generation of brokenness to the point where today, I'm working with the family of Norman Brunn and these people are truly scarred because you get some dickhead at the Herald Sun. The Herald Sun writes an article saying this family has an evil crime gene, and this traumatized the family. I mean, I can't explain how much. And so they come to me and they said, "Is this to a chopper reader?" I said, "What do you mean?" And they said, "Well, just by pure coincidence, two of the many many relations." who descend from Norman, were involved with the underbelly gangland wars and killed Lewis Moran at the Brunswick Club. Oh, wow. Now, I'm going to say that is apple in the tree, but that's not all of them. So to be able to work with this family and say, I'd like to do a respectful job of this biography, I'd like to talk truth, I'm not looking to vilify or sensationalize it, um, and I, I want this to perhaps even be a healing experience where I can say, these are the contributing factors that made Norman Brun into the gangland razor leader. World War I, where he was brutalised, a, a life before that where his own dad threw his brother through the front window at the age of seven. There's always contributing factors. But, you know, so to be able to biography and reach out through social media, to meet new people and get those stories is just an incredible time to be alive. One, one thing that's always intrigued
0: me about the, the crime families is you at some point that cycle broke because if you look at uh, in the modern world, you know, you've get typical crime type families or uh, it it tends to become a cycle and the kids end up in that cycle. It normalizes and this path of violence and, and crime continues and continues. So it's always interesting that at some point, as you've found talking to people that cycle broke and they began a new life as a normal part of society rather than a crime gang or or a criminal activity part of society. And that, that's interesting. It'd be interesting to see what caused that change. How did that change happen? Because when you're looking at it in real time live, you sort of can't see how that could
1: how that could happen. It, it's an interesting aspect I have looked at. Um, Squizzy's last wife, she was able to make a very good life for her daughter by becoming a right-wing fundamentalist Christian family. So they put, she put her daughter in a um, St. Michael's Grammar Girls School in St. Kilda, and she lived in boarding with the nuns. His second wife, a uh, lady called um, uh, Lorna Kelly. Lorna left Squizzy because he was running around town with every other girl. They'd had one daughter in the height of the Fitzroy Vendetta who died as a nine-month-old from influenza, which would have been horrific watching your baby waste away, they had a second daughter and Squizzy just was AWOL, so she left. But it, the family believes, and I think they're telling the truth, that she went to the police and said, look, help me get away from this guy because he will find me. Help me get away from him and I'll tell you where all the bodies are buried. So they, and this sounds too, it sounds so far-fetched, but this is what I think actually happened. The family believes that she then moved in with a policeman in Kensington who had a wife himself, and she died of cancer only months earlier, Lorna Kelly took the name and identity of this policeman's now deceased wife and lived in the house under witness protection for years.
0: Jeez, wow.
1: Isn't that, inc- that like, is incredible? Amazing. But it and shows got-
0: that someone, someone had to step up and break that cycle. Yeah. There was always someone yeah. that saw outside the, the circle they were in, wanted yeah. something better for the future, and, and made a
1: huge risk been doing Mm. it and we see the cycle overlap with the first wife with Dolly gray she goes to adelaide with one of the two daughters and she she ends up reasonably okay actually but the first daughter who was probably more scarred by being around the prostitution the guns the drugs she married but she ended up killing herself in her 30s And so there we have one daughter who suicides, but the second daughter completely removes herself to Adelaide and doesn't. And I I think if you stay around it, it's very hard to make those changes. You also need money to make those changes. You know, so it's it's a very sad sort of affairs.
0: Yeah, not something to get into lightly, that's for sure. The other question I got for you is how do you think, and I'm sure you get asked this a lot, how do you think the level of impact uh, to to let's talk joe average in society um the, the violence and the crime i mean we we've got obviously sydney and melbourne uh, oh, everywhere's got problems at the moment with gangs criminal you know gangs um and they're very violent there seems to be no end of the violence and the shootings that occur the would it have been the same back then you know we we look at black and white photos we put a bit of nostalgia and a bit of softness and we associate it with a kinder time and a more um, polite time and sure crimes happen but overall they we don't associate the people in uh, old Melbourne jail as being as ruthless I guess as the people that would be in a modern prison um, purely with that attachment or association we have with with nostalgia but do you think it would have been equally bad looking at
1: today's organized crime gangs as as it was then I think it was worse. We um, we romanticise the past. I'll qualify what I'm about to say with a bit more about who and what I am. I, I, I guess when you look at somebody that does something public like like I do as an author, you see them in a two dimensional context. I spend I have a full day like everybody else during the day. I have a full time job that I've chosen out of love. I work at a maximum security prison as the Aboriginal um, liaison officer. So I, I work every day with really damaged guys i would say only one or two of them are you know i don't use the word evil but i reckon most of them are guys who ended up in a situation they wouldn't have if they had other choices okay or better better backgrounds but at the same time so i think a lot about criminology in 1893 there was a global economic crash that made poor people beyond poor and it drove whole families out of houses. And the homelessness wasn't just homeless. It was, it's, it's hard to even describe now. And I, I, when I lecture, like for academic reasons, I talk to the classes and I say, there's a couple of good resources you can look at. Um, one of them is called uh, People of the Abyss. And it talks about this exact time period in England and how there were laws that said things like um, homeless people couldn't sleep publicly at night or they'd be arrested. So these poor people would just be up all night, just trying not to fall asleep. Then they'd sleep all day, which meant they couldn't get jobs. Which meant that they would drink to stay warm at night, and it was this horrific ongoing cycle. And then, when you brutalize somebody and make, when they see that they're not cared about by others, they stop caring about themselves too. So brutalizes them and puts them in this unwinnable cycle of destitution, and they don't. They stop. They're numb to self-care. They're numb to the care of others, and we talk about the justice system now being, you know, a bit too nanny state. What the justice system back then was, was Squizzy Taylor's older brother was flogged in jail across the back with a cat of nine tails. So that's the kind of punishment that we had up until almost, I, I met the last man who was whipped in Pentridge. I was much younger and he said, he told the story that he was woken up at dawn. They put him on the rack in the milling square with a leather brace on his backside and lower back and on his top of his shoulder and neck. And a psychologist stood in front of him and said, you did this, this, and this. And then somebody s- struck him with the K-9 tails. Again, the psychologist said, flat tone, you did this, this, and this, struck again. And that happened 21 times. He said he saw his own flesh hit the, the pavement in front of him and he wasn't just changed from it. He was emotionally incapable of talking to anybody for three years. Oh wow! Now, that I'm not saying he did the right or wrong thing. Factually, that's just what happened. We hung Ronald Ryan in my dad's lifetime. I spoke to Father Brosnan, who walked Ronald Ryan to the gallows, and he was changed forever by that. So I reckon we're probably in the softest, most romantic period in history, and I think the past was brutal, unforgiving, and victim-making.
0: Looking at the, that timeline, one thing that's that I find interesting is, uh, and not being obviously mm-hmm. as deep into the history as you, is there seems to be a gap. We've got when the Squizzy Taylor and the Razor Gang period ended, and then the next big thing that we talk about is the Queensland corruption mm-hmm. of the 70s. Uh, I suppose more associated with the late 70s is when it hit fever pitch and, and then it sort of came to an end in the sometime in the 80s. But that gap between, would you say, nineteen Forties to 1970, was there still big criminal activities that a book is yet to be written about and a Channel 9 series?
1: Yeah. Um, we're spoiled for content before World War II because that's what there was to report on. So the reporters did report on it.
0: Right.
1: World War II sucks up all the news. Out of World, world War II, the soldiers come back and they don't have an, a lot of the criminals were soldiers and vice versa, and they don't seem to have an appetite for crime in the same kind of way. The police got better at policing, um, and they had plainclothes police who could be present watching, not on a beat now. Um, And American Hollywood culture really came in, and we lost interest in all of our own culture. Mm, So when after World War II, when media was syndicated and we could get content from America, who were producing huge volumes, we just didn't need content. So there were criminals that we just didn't need to glorify them um, right. because we had American content and there was a, a an accidental but positive trade-off by not um, glorifying Australian con- uh, criminals. We didn't create more copycats. Mm. Well, we, we have this attachment, this thing of
0: 1950s Australia. You left your money out on the front yeah. door Nothing ever happened. Everyone was yes or no, sir. Everyone knew everybody. There wasn't a drug in the, in the streets. There wasn't a crime. And you look back and go, oh, will we ever see the likes of that again? And-
1: Religion's another aspect you've got to throw in, this, in the Australian culture. We in, in the 1920s, Squizzy had grown up in a reformed Presbyterian church, orphanage. We don't have many Presbyterians left. They became the Uniting Church alongside the Lutherans, the Calvinists. They all merged to make the Uniting Church. Right, oh, but, but the Reformed Presbyterians were the Presbyterians who said, we're not joining the Uniting's. In fact, we're not just going to be remain Presbyterians. We're going to become ultra-Presbyterian. We're going to reform. So they became don't drink, don't gan- dance, don't gamble, don't smoke, don't sweat. They were really now come out of world war ii where people were really tested that kind of thing became very hard to sell to a bloke who had just seen the blood of a a warfield yeah then also put into that 1969 you get vatican ii now the 60s and even the late 50s threw up an air of post-world war ii where guys were like you know what i don't want uniforms i don't want bloodshed i want just usable christianity and peace and a nice veggie patch it really was a slingshot against the horror of war. So you could leave your your wallet out, and you you could try and steal it, but you would be flogged by war capable people. You know, so it was. Yeah. Th- there's reasons why the the macro group of society reacted in those bulk kinds of ways, but in amongst it, you will always get people who say, "You know what? I was always just attracted to crime; and it was exciting."
0: Oh yeah, and then how do you how do you put a lid on that? If that's you know, yeah, that's yeah. Yeah. And not to sound lazy, but mm. is
1: there any chance of audiobooks? Yeah, look, I'm I'm only a provider away. I don't have the personal ability to make that myself, but I have floated this on my, some of my own platforms in the past. If you are out there and you are a member of, I don't know, Ex Libris or uh, is it Reddit or one of those that, that does that kind of thing, I would love the email and the discussion with somebody that can help me connect that. I would love to be a part of that. Yeah, because I think um, I your books haven't... would be
0: perfect for it. They're,
1: they're yeah, books you. you get
0: lost in. You just drive, and you you don't realize you travelled an hour through traffic, listening to a great
1: story. Yeah, thank you. I, I yeah, absolutely would love to. And I'm also aware there are a lot of people that their literacy skills uh, aren't able to digest something at this level but they don't have the lack of hunger for knowledge so yeah. to be able to provide it in that context i would love yeah. to be a part of that so look my, my details are prolifically on social media i'm on roy malloy m-a-l-o-y everywhere Uh reach out send me a message give me the pathway i'd love to partner with somebody i uh would love to i don't care if it makes money or not i'm quite happy to do that on a pro bono kind of basis but um yeah, If so, anybody's aware of the, the mechanism to get the, my books on audiobooks, to be able to tell that Australian story uh, would be a great blessing. Yeah, for sure. And look, I'll put a, uh, for every podcast we do, we, we
0: create a page um, and I'll certainly put your details on that page. So uh, after listening, if they want to find more, they can click straight over to some of your stuff. So hopefully that does come through because it would be great. I think that's another whole nother audience there. That's just going to fall in
1: love with the stories. Yeah, thank you. We've talked for nearly two hours, so I'm fast, haven't i going to fast, you, <laughs> <laughs> uh-huh. have to one, let you go. Weeks. Give me content for weeks.
0: <laughs> <laughs> no, look, I really appreciate your time. I've I've thoroughly enjoyed it. It's um, you, you, I had a list of questions and you've answered them all absolutely beautifully, <laughs> without
1: me having to ask any of them. So well, the exciting, I mean, next next stage is hopefully, i uh, you know, loving being able to meet you people through. You know, your audience, but um, the, the next stage is there's a couple of books on the horizon. The Norman Brunn biography comes out hopefully mid-next year, which is called Die by the Razor, um, and it, it talks extensively about information I have about who killed him and why. Um, there's a, two different Dawn of Crime books I'm hoping to be able to write. Uh, one of them is about a rash of murders that happened just after Jack the Ripper became famous in England, and they were copycats around Australia. Um. Yeah, so the Australian Ripper stories come out, and that's been commissioned by Scotland Yard. Actually, they've um, reached out and given me some funding for that. Wow! Um, yeah, and so then there's a, um, a third Dawn of Crime uh, book, which is looking at Australian pubs where illegal stuff went down. Um, that's so they're, they're, I, I would love to see a um, a then and now.
0: So where you can, you know, actually do a, grab a book and go, I'm going to go to these addresses. I want to see what this building looks like now. Um, yeah, right. I, I love that. I found one the other day where they did through Fortitude Valley um, with all of the brothels that were part of the whole Fitzgerald and, yeah. and they had the addresses and they had what it was, what it is now. And some of them are clothing shops and this and this and that. And for me, that's just, it just puts pictures and creates so much. You'd love to go walking on a weekend and just do that.
1: On my TikTok account, I've done a series of maybe twenty or thirty different clips, which are called the tragedies. And the tragedies before nineteen before the World War II, when there was something horrific in a house, typically a house, they would call it, for example, the Northgate tragedy or the Mooney Ponds tragedy. Okay. And in one case, there was a mother who had bipolar, I think. She wasn't coping. She had two small sons and a, a husband. Mum had come to look after her. Dad went to work. Son went to school. The little son was getting dressed. She went out in the back when he went to the backyard and she hacked him to bits with a, an axe. But in, in its entirety, that house still stands, every room. What? Oh, geez. Imagine
0: being a little At the time
1: that, yes, yeah, so I drove there. I'm out the front. And as I was out the front, I saw that there was a for sale sign. I went on the internet and found the internal photos of the house. I was talking to a friend of mine who's in forensics, and she said, you know, if you went under those floorboards, I guarantee you, black light would illuminate human remains because blood goes obviously through floorboards and carpet.
0: Yeah. Wow. Now
1: they would sell that house. Someone would buy it three, 4 million. No idea. And there's lots of houses like that. So there, I've got a bunch of those clips on TikTok already called the tragedies. Um, okay. But uh, yeah, there's a, I mean, God, if we could, if I had the funding, if you have the money, come and see me. I've got a production company. I know we would love to make these into a TV series yeah oh that would be unreal wouldn't that be
0: and that's exactly what we should be doing with our stories Got all
1: of it written just need the, the expertise and the money
0: yeah well hopefully someone's listening that it is all cashed up i mean if i ever won lotto that's the sort of stuff i would be doing with my money so yeah it's extraordinary stuff. Yeah. thank you so much for having me no look thank you I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it um thank you very much thank you so much Thanks very much for listening to the show. If you do want to find out more about Bumping Into past episodes or you want to find out more about this episode, there is a page on our website. So head to bumpinginto.com.au. The Roy Malloy story will be there with links to Roy's books and some of his socials if you're wanting to find out more. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Thanks for listening.